Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, Narina Hertz will talk to us about the epidemic of loneliness, and Rosanna Rodriguez will say a few words in defense of mutual aid. Before that, comments in a couple of recent papers. Electoral maps and analysis have helped create a story that the U.S. is becoming increasingly unequal geographically, with affluent coastal regions getting richer and the heartland left behind. This looks to be a bit of an oversimplification. A new working paper for the National Bureau of Economic Research by Cecile Gobert, Patrick Klein, Damian Vergara, and Danny Yagan finds that most of the action in the growth of spatial inequality has been happening at the county level, not the state level. And surprisingly, poverty rates have been converging across counties in what the authors call democratization of poverty, as the urban wage premium has declined for less skilled workers. Meanwhile, the real divergence is happening at the upper end, as the rich get richer in some places, but not all. The authors first look at income dispersion across states. They find a broad W pattern, with interstate income inequality falling from the early 1960s into the late 70s, rising some in the 80s, falling into the mid-90s, and then rising persistently into the present. Transfer payments have softened these moves somewhat, but not enough to neutralize the broad trends. And most of that dampening has come through Social Security and Medicare, suggesting that inequality among younger people is driving the results. Looking at counties, however, we see a different story. The increase in inequality at the county level has been steady since around 1975, with no W-ish moves in the 80s and 90s, and the rise in dispersion, an economist's euphemism for inequality, is roughly twice as large as it is among states. The main reason for this looks to be the increasing self-segregation of high-income households into particular counties. Pandemic relocations may change this story some, as affluent households from star cities parachute into modest rural areas, but going into 2020, spatial patterns in U.S. income distribution were largely determined by the better-off isolating themselves into bubbles of affluence. And in another paper, this from the IMF, its staff economists Philip Barrett and Sophia Chen investigate the history of pandemics and find they are frequently followed by upsurges in social unrest especially if the wave of illness reveals serious pre-existing fissures in the affected society. They opened the paper by recounting the cholera pandemic of 1832 that hit Paris, which killed 20,000, most of them in working-class slums. Rampant disease and death heightened already intense class tensions, leading to a wave of unrest known as the Paris Uprising of 1832, the basis for Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Other famous examples of pandemics leading to social unrest include the Black Death and the 1918 flu epidemic. An epidemic may keep people indoors and quiet while it rages, but once it ebbs, all hell can break loose. To lend some rigor to these anecdotal examples, the authors make use of an index of social unrest based on media reports from 1985 to the present, compiled by one of the authors, Barrett, and three other IMF economists, which they wrote up in a paper last year. That work found that countries with more frequent and severe epidemics also experience greater unrest. Disease isn't the only shock that can lead to subsequent unrest. Barrett and Chen cite other work showing that a sharp decline in GDP growth of 5 percentage points increases the likelihood of conflict by one half the following year. But there's been little investigation of the role of pandemics in inciting riot until this paper. Barrett and Chen find that the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic led to a decline in unrest events. March 2020 saw the fewest in five years. Two exceptions to this early COVID placidity, Lebanon after the port explosion last August, and the U.S., the BLM protests of last summer. But as they conclude, if history is a guide, it is reasonable to expect that, as the pandemic fades, unrest may reemerge in locations where it previously existed, not because of the COVID-19 crisis per se, but simply because underlying social and political issues have not been tackled. This effect may help explain the extraordinary attack in the U.S. Capitol in January 6, but suggests there's more to come. And now on to the guests. First, loneliness, the topic of a new book by Narina Hertz. She makes a strong argument that a profound sense of isolation is one of the major characteristics of our time, and one that the pandemic has only worsened. 
Her book on the topic, The Lonely Century, How to Restore Human Connection in a World That's Pulling Apart, is just out from the currency imprint of Penguin Random House. She's the author of four other books and also teaches at University College London. Norena Hertz. Let's start with a definition of loneliness. What do you mean by the word? So when we think of loneliness, we often think about a craving for intimacy or company, a craving to be connected with our friends or family. But I define it more broadly. I define loneliness as not only feeling disconnected from your friends and family, but also feeling disconnected from your fellow citizens, from your government, from your employer, about craving to be seen, heard, be visible, not only amongst your peers, but also vis-a-vis your state and your workplace. So for me, loneliness is political as well as personal. Its drivers, economic, technological, as well as, of course, driven too by the choices we make about how we treat each other. You do say this at a couple of points, but this has something in common with Marx's idea of alienation. Yes. So um, Marx, of course, had a theory of alienation where he talked about the alienated worker disconnected from their work, from their employer, from themselves. Hannah Arendt talked about loneliness again in this broader context, loneliness and its political implications, something I look at too. Emil Durkheim, the famous sociologist, talked about anomie also a sense of feeling isolated. So my definition, though broader than perhaps in common usage, is rooted in a very long-standing academic tradition, whereby we're seeing loneliness as an existential state of being. And as you argue, uh, loneliness of this sort has actual physical consequences. It's not just a bad feeling, but it actually uh, pervades the body with its badness. Yes. When we think about loneliness, we often think about its mental health implications, and there are many. Loneliness is linked with higher rates of anxiety, higher rates of depression, and even, unfortunately, higher rates of suicide. But its physical manifestations are something we don't immediately often think about. Yet, it's because we are designed in evolutionary terms not to be lonely, what happens is there's almost a kind of very sophisticated evolutionary trigger that happens when we do feel lonely. Our blood pressure goes up, our stress levels go up, our heart rate goes up. We're essentially put into fight or flight mode. All these signals telling us, stop being on your own, go and find your tribe, go and find other people to hunt and gather with. Trouble is, of course, in modern life, many people are remaining lonely for long periods of time, chronically lonely. And what we know is that if you're in this state of fight or flight for weeks or months or even years on end, it's very bad for your health. In fact, loneliness is as bad for our health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day with loneliness associated with a 30% higher rate of getting heart attacks, strokes, um, a 64% higher risk of getting dementia if we're feeling lonely. What's particularly worrying is that scientists who've studied even relatively short periods of loneliness, periods of under two years, show that even being lonely for such a shorter period can have a marked impact on our life expectancy. And given that 50% of Americans currently feel lonely, this is research done since the pandemic, this is particularly worrying. The pandemic, of course, is an interesting angle. I I, I gather you conceived this project before the pandemic, but uh, the concerns only have to be intensified given the isolation we're experiencing in this. And not just the isolation, but also this sense, which is one of the things that gets to me most about it, is that your fellow human is a threat. Yes. These feelings are uh, very damaging and likely to have very long-term consequences, aren't they? Yes. One of the things that One of my motivations, actually, for starting this research was I was looking at the rise of right-wing populism across the globe. And one of the things that came out time and time again from testimonies of right-wing populist voters, whether it was Le Pen voters in France or Salvini voters in Italy or Trump voters in the United States, was how lonely they felt. Lonely in the sense of not having friends and support networks. In fact, there's research that shows that Trump voters in 2016 were significantly more likely than Hillary Clinton voters to say that they had no friends, limited acquaintances, and that the only person they could rely on was themselves, but also lonely in the sense of feeling invisible, unheard, marginalized. 
And again, this is research that is replicated empirically. We see that people who feel socially isolated are more likely to vote for right-wing populist parties. And it's partly to do with the fact, which comes back to your specific question, that when you're lonely, you are more likely to see the world as a hostile place. You're more likely to see the world as a threatening place. And right-wing populist leaders have played very effectively to all these elements of loneliness, providing community, or at least spectacle of community. Think about Trump rallies with branded gear and synchronized chants, speaking to this sense of forsakenness that people have. You know, you the forgotten people, I am there for you, would be something that Trump did say. But also speaking to that sense of fear of other that the lonely disproportionately have. Because, of course, the community wielded by right-wing populists is a particularly excluding one. So speaking to all those elements. There's an interesting angle in your analysis of Trump, which I hadn't thought of precisely in these terms before, which is that uh, as wildly individualistic as he was and many of his you know, policies were, he did create this sense of collectivity or community, a we. Bernie Sanders, of course, made a big point of it, that collectivity was far more inclusive than the one that Trump put forth. But Trump did create, evoke this sense of we. But then you also mentioned that other right-wing parties around the, in Europe in particular um, have dinners and socials and things where people get together. And it's a cure for their loneliness, or at least an alternative to it. Left-wing parties used to do this sort of thing, but they don't anymore. Um, but the right is really yes. picked up on this. Yes, and I mean, there's absolutely no reason why the left shouldn't speak to the craving for community that many people have. And of course, trade unions did deliver solidarity and a sense of brotherhood for their members traditionally in the past. But one of the things the left has seen has been the erosion of trade unions, which often were the kind of brotherhood of the left. And left-wing politicians on general haven't been able or haven't chosen to wield community as effectively as many on the right have. That isn't a reason for them not to do so, of course, moving forward and encouraging, of course, that you have a new administration now in place who you know, might be able to speak to this. Yeah, they are trying to evoke that sense of unity. Whether they can deliver that, we'll see, but uh, what hopes. Now, you write a bit about the, uh, the strange, uh, strangely good health of the Haredim who don't necessarily have the best um, habits, not the best diet, not the, the most uh, vigorous exercise, yet they tend to live longer than uh, people around them. What, what's up with that? So I was fascinated to discover that the Haredim, these are the, um, for people who don't know, these are the ultra-religious Jews, the ones who you might have seen wearing black hats and the women modestly dressed. For all kind of traditional measures of health, we would expect this group to have lower life expectancy. They don't exercise much. They don't eat healthy food. A lot of the food's fried, high fat. This is a group because they're modestly dressed. They have limited exposure to vitamin D, even when they're living in Israel in the sunshine. A greater proportion of this um, constituency live below the poverty line, live in poverty. So again, from for a whole host of reasons, we would expect this group to have lower life expectancy than usual. But actually, research in Israel found that these Haredim lived longer than the average Israeli, considerably not longer, by an average of three to four years. And researchers who tried to discover, unpack why this should be, have come to the conclusion that it really is because of how bonded they are as a community. You know, this is a group of people who spend a lot of time together. They go to synagogue together. They get they celebrate bar mitzvahs, Passover, Sukkot together. When somebody in the community is sick, others will go and be there for them. If somebody's in financial need, they'll go and help them. It's a community who really help each other pull together. I don't want to romanticize them too much because, of course, as is the case with many of these tight-knit communities, if you transgress their norms, you're very quickly excluded from the community and shunned. But for those playing by the rules, for those subscribing to the norms, these places actually are ones where loneliness is incredibly low. And the fact that people are considerably less lonely there is the reason why they live considerably longer. 
Oh, I guess we think of um, loneliness, uh, particularly about older people. Their relatives are dead. Their friends are dead. Uh, no one shows much interest in them. But um, this is also prevalent among younger people, too. Like, talk about the prevalence among younger people. What are the causes? What are the effects? And uh, how are they coping with it? The young are actually the group who are the loneliest. So they are the loneliest, lonelier than the elderly as a group. And that is quite surprising to many people. And why this is, the single biggest factor for why the young are the loneliest has to be our mobile phones, our smartphones and social media. If we look at charts that have looked at rising loneliness levels amongst the young, there's they are very clearly correlated with increased usage of smartphones and social media. Now, you might say this is purely correlation or it might be that lonely young people use social media more. And I'd say up until about two years ago, you could have argued both of those. But about two years ago, there was a very seminal study done at Stanford University where they gave 1,500 students were told, keep using Facebook as usual. The other 1,500 were told, stop using Facebook for two months. And then the researchers monitored how things changed for the participants. And what they found was very, very clear. The group of students who had stopped using Facebook were significantly happier significantly less lonely and did significantly more in-person face-to-face with friends and family. So why using social media makes people feel lonely, which is counterintuitive to some degree because these are meant to be these social networks bringing people together, is I think for these reasons. First, because of the quality of our interactions on our smartphones and on social media. They're just not as good. I think of those conversations one has on uh, Facebook or Twitter, in a way, they're the fast food equivalent of conversation. Fast food can be very satisfying at first, though, right? Yeah, exactly. Very satisfying at first, you know, gorge on them. In the same way, if you're gorging on hamburgers, at the end, you might well not feel sated. I think it's that same, you get that same feeling when your conversations migrate to social media. Then, of course, there's the fact that these media, especially for children and young people, can be incredibly excluding and cruel. 65% of British students have experienced cyberbullying firsthand. And in my interviews with teenagers for my book, one of the things that came out time and time again was how invisible the medium made them feel. One of them, a little 14-year-old boy, Peter, told me about how he would post on Instagram and then be waiting, waiting, hoping for somebody to like his posts. And when they didn't, asking himself, what am I doing wrong? Feeling so invisible, he told me. Or Claudia, whose friends had told her that they weren't going out after school. And then she was in her bedroom scrolling on her social media. She saw them going out, having fun without her, her not being invited. She said she hid in her room for a week because she felt so alone. And of course, there always was exclusion, even in my day in the schoolyard. But in the past, parents were likely to be aware of it or a teacher would have seen a child not being invited to sit with others at school. Today, because so much of their social interaction is happening on their phones, the adult in their lives isn't even aware of it. And yet their exclusion is all too visible amongst their peers. And then there's just the addictive nature of these devices. And this, as teenagers remind me when I speak to them about this, it's not that only them who are so addicted. We older adults definitely are too. And just and that addiction that pulls us to our phones really diminishes the quality of our relationships with others. Because we've all been guilty of it, been in the room with our friends or partners or family and head in our phones, not really being present with our partner or friend or family member, not even hearing them often at times. And it's for these reasons that I do believe that social media is the tobacco industry of the 21st century and really should be regulated as such, especially when it comes to children with addictive social media. I think being banned for under 16-year-olds with the onus then being on social media companies to create less addictive products and also hopefully products that don't incentivize 
the hatred that they currently do with the algorithms actually incentivizing hateful posts. You know, why not incentivize kind posts instead? I'm speaking with Narina Hertz, author of The Lonely Century, How to Restore Human Connection in a World That's Pulling Apart, just out from the currency imprint of Penguin Random House. Can't get the clicks that way. <laughs> that's why we can't leave it solely to the market to determine these <laughs> things. But also for the last 40 years or so, we've been under the rule of an ideology and a practice, which Margaret Thatcher famously enunciated as there's no such thing as society. There's only individuals and their families. That sense that we're just isolated monads under a reign of competitive individualism has been pervasive and totally internalized. What's the contribution of that to this problem? You're absolutely right, Doug. This plays a huge part in why this is the lonely century, because what we've seen ever since the 1980s, when Thatcher and Reagan embraced what we call neoliberal capitalism, so that's that very self-centered, self-focused, me-first form of capitalism that became dominant from the 1980s onwards, what we've seen is people becoming increasingly lonely alongside this increasingly individualistic mindset. In one sense, the response to put yourself first and be self-interested was a rational one to a world in which the state was withdrawing. And if you didn't have yourself to trust and count upon, well, who could you? The state? No. The market? No. So in one sense, it was a rational response. And yet a self-interested me-first world was always going to be, of course, a more lonely one. We've come over the past few decades to really valorize qualities like hyper-competitiveness, individualism, determination, at the expense of qualities like caring for each other, kindness, compassion. These were not qualities that the market valued, that neoliberal capitalism valued. And so we came, unfortunately, not to value them in each other or our friends. But we've also seen policies in cities in particular arise uh, to prevent people from gathering. You mentioned uh, the benches that are deliberately uncomfortable so that the people don't sleep on them. Um, we, uh, the, uh, the speakers that emit unpleasant sounds that are only, only audible to the young, the lighting that's unflattering to people with acne, <laughs> that sort of thing. I mean, what are we doing to ourselves by trying to keep people from congregating that way? Yes, it's depressing that instead of designing cities so that people come together and are able to be together, what's actually happened over the past few decades is that we're increasingly creating an architecture of exclusion where cities are increasingly being designed to keep those deemed undesirable out, the homeless, young people. So if if I just walk just a few metres from my home in London, for example, there's a bench, um, a public bench on the street. At first glance, looks fine, looks normal. But then when you look at it a bit more closely, you realise that it's got sloping, it's sloping and that actually it's not a good bench to sit on. In fact, it'd be very uncomfortable to sit on. And then you start realising, OK, this bench was designed to so that kids can't skateboard on it and so that a homeless person can't sleep on it. Of course, that also means that the elderly person who might have perched on the bench in the old days and watched the world go by and chat to passers-by also now doesn't have a place to sit. And if you look around you wherever you are, you're likely to see examples of hostile architecture, architecture like this designed to keep those deemed undesirable out as far afield as San Francisco, Vancouver, Seattle, we have example after example of such architecture. And at the same time, we have another form of excluding architecture taking place, which is in the, in the shape of new housing developments, which are being created with a tax break given to developers who make some of the housing more financially affordable. And again, this is something we see in the United Kingdom, but also across the United States. Sounds good. The trouble is that what we're seeing is that in all too often in these developments, those who are paying subsidized rent or able to buy a property at a subsidized rate are literally not allowed to enter through the same doors 
as the higher paying residents, with in some cases even the playgrounds that the children play in divided, bifurcated, depending on whether the residents are from the affordable side or from the um, subsidised side. These are worrying developments that we're seeing across the world and something to be really aware of. Now, you also write about uh, the workplace in the pre-pandemic workplace, the open plan office leading to such alienation that uh, people communicate on Slack rather than talking to each other. A friend of mine, her office had to move briefly into a WeWork, and she found the the noise so distracting she got noise-canceling headphones, although WeWork is supposed to be all about encouraging collaboration and community. That workplace now has been replaced for many um, knowledge workers by uh, working from home. What is the contribution of these workplace arrangements to this pervasive loneliness? Before the pandemic, we know that as many as 40% of American workers felt office workers felt lonely at work, which is an astonishingly high figure. And the layout, the physical layout of the office definitely, in my mind, played a part there. That's because we've seen research over the past few years, open plan offices have become the most common form of office layout in the United States. And Yet what we've seen in research, which has shown what happens to groups of employees who move from a cubicle or office style environment to an open plan office, is that, yes, they communicate surprisingly far less as a consequence face to face and instead communicate far more by email or on their phones or through apps like Slack. It's partly because of the um, noise, yes, which which encourages you to put your noise-cancelling headphones on and keep your head down. It's partly because of these offices' panoptic natures, for sure. You feel like everyone's watching you, and so you have to perform, and performance isn't going to lead to authentic conversations. And, and, and of fact, if you've got anything authentic or important to say, you're likely to want to say it outside of the office or via a non-public forum. Of course, Now, many of us are working from home, which is even lonelier. I think the initial euphoria that many felt when they first started working at home almost a year ago now has, by and large, worn off. And although there, of course, are some people for whom working from home actually has been a positive experience, many, by far the majority by now, are really missing those moments in the workplace at the water cooler where you'll just chat to somebody or those hello how are yous um, that you'd have when you walked past a colleague. The challenge moving forward though is to think about how do we redesign the workplace so that togetherness and community are actually embedded in the design because from a business perspective and from an employer's perspective lonely workers are really bad news. The single biggest determinant for whether somebody will be productive at work is whether they have a friend at work. We know that lonely workers are less productive, less efficient, more likely to leave a company, quit than workers who are not. So there's a business case for it too. And the fixes can be really quite straightforward and easy. There's uh, a study that I really liked that I came across in my research. Researchers were looking at firefighters in the United States, in Chicago, And they wanted to understand why certain companies of firefighters performed better than others. And what they found was that companies of firefighters who ate together performed twice as well as companies who didn't. So once we're able to be back in the office, enabling people to have a space where they can eat together and actively encouraging that is a small is a very small move that companies can make. But it is also bigger than that because it's also about institutionalizing within the workplace care and compassion and making sure that these are qualities which actually are rewarded. They haven't been in the same way that we've internalized how valuable competitiveness and determination and resilience are in our personal lives in the workplace. Of course, these have also been highly valued too. And yet there are some companies who are bucking the trend. Cisco, for example, they have a scheme that I really like, whereby any employee up and down the company, so from the receptionist to the CEO, can nominate anyone else in the company for a cash reward of up to $10,000 if they've been particularly helpful or kind. 
So that's a company saying, you know what, we're actually going to put our money behind this and we're going to actively reward people who are kind, which, you know, I think is fantastic. And they, Cisco was actually voted the best company in the world to work for by its employees last year. So there is a business, a positive benefit from businesses for making sure that employees feel seen, feel valued and don't feel lonely. What about the criticism, which I imagine you've heard, is that there's really nothing new here. This is just a moral panic over new developments. You know, it's the same with TV, with comic books. We've heard all these things before about how it's destroying the social fabric. And um, this is just the latest iteration of it. Is something really different now from what went before? Well, in terms of loneliness, yes, for sure. I mean, we can see this empirically. We can see this if we compare, for example, there have been um, studies over the past decade of 15-year-olds. This is in thousands of 15-year-olds in number in numerous countries and looking at how lonely they are. And we see that 15-year-olds have been getting progressively lonely over the past decade. Studies of adults over the past decade from as far afield as the United States, the United Kingdom, even China show steadily increasing numbers of people feeling lonely. So, you know, we have got the data to support this. The pandemic has, of course, massively accelerated this. So even before the pandemic, one in five Americans were lonely often or always. One in five Americans didn't have a single, one in five American millennials didn't have a single friend, single friend. But since the pandemic, these numbers have unfortunately got worse. So so this is very real. And for those who might criticise that some of the factors may, um, some of the drivers I'm pointing to may not be new. Well, neoliberalism, this kind of dog-eat-dog, me-first, greed-is-good capitalism is relatively new, only came into effect in the 1980s. I'm not anti-capitalist, to be clear. It's just that there always were different models of capitalism from... FDR's capitalism, in which he really saw capitalism as something to serve the people, not be its master, to Asian models of capitalism that, of course, promoted great innovativeness in their economies. So this isn't about being anti-capitalism. There are some who might say, well, social media, oh, yes, you know, we've had people criticize social media in the same way as you say that we, that they criticized televisions in the past, or even Socrates, of course, criticized writing, saying that if people write too much, they were, they'll forget how to use their memory. The difference with social media and our phones is the extent to which we're connected to them. Never have we been so permanently connected, perma-connected, perma-distracted. So it's a matter of quantity of the amount that we're attached to these screens that is substantively different. And then there's the fact that we do less together. And again, we know this from a whole range of studies. We do less together with others than we did even a decade ago. Less people are members of trade unions. Less people go to church. Less people go to synagogue. Less people are members of parent-teacher associations. So we also know that these have been diminished. And then if we add to that the fact that what we might think of as the infrastructure of community, public libraries, public parks, youth clubs, elderly daycare centres, places where people can come together, have since the financial crisis of 2008 seen their funding massively diminished. In the United States, federal funding for public libraries has fallen by 40% since 2008. We also realise that people don't have as many of these physical spaces to come together. And we're never going to find common ground if there are no physical spaces that we share. I always do this, you know, leave the uh, the solutions towards the end when time is running low. So give us the, a quick version of what can we do about these things, um, short of a total overhaul of our social system. There's lots that government can do and lots that business can do. And I go into that in depth in my book. But there's also a lot that we can do as individuals. We can put our phones down more and be more present with each other. We can, especially now when our local stores and cafes are really struggling, think very actively about how we can support them. And if we do have a choice where to shop right now, shop in our local stores and shops. And the third thing we can do that can make a real difference is think about whether there's anyone in our own network who might be feeling lonely. And if there is, pick up the phone, give them a call. 
if you are able to meet up with them in a physically safe, socially distanced way, meet up with them because just showing someone that you care, showing someone that you're there for them can make a huge difference to how they feel. That was Narina Hertz, author of The Lonely Century, How to Restore Human Connection in a World That's Pulling Apart, just out from the currency imprint of Penguin Random House. When I mentioned a total overhaul of our social system in my last question, I meant to suggest politely that that's exactly what's required. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the sonata number 230 in the Kirkpatrick catalog by Domenico Scarlatti performed by Scott Ross. Next, mutual aid. Last week, Maria Nella de Aprila suggested that while it has its place, the practice is no alternative to organizing for power. The central idea of mutual aid, which has deep roots in anarchist thought, is that people should take care of each other in non-hierarchical voluntary fashion. It's intended not only to alleviate suffering, but also to prefigure a post-capitalist society, one characterized by egalitarianism and solidarity, without the heavy coercive hand of the state or large-scale bureaucracy. De Aprila finds it's not up to the task of social transformation. Rosana Rodriguez, a member of the socialist bloc within the Chicago City Council, asked for some time to file a friendly dissent, so I complied. In the interview, Rosana Rodriguez mentions Bread for Ed, which is an effort pioneered by East Bay DSA during the March 2019 Oakland teachers' strike and then picked up by Chicago DSA and Jobs with Justice when the Chicago teachers struck in October of that year. It provided food for teachers and for students who are dependent on meals provided by their schools. Here's Rosana Rodriguez. So welcome. You have some uh, disagreements with what Marianella was saying last week about mutual aid. So what, what's your opinion? What, uh, what, what do you think she got wrong or is missing? So first of all, I want to say that I have a lot of respect for Marianella and I like her very much. And, uh, but I do think that there are a few things that are missing from the discussion about mutual aid right now. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. I think one of the things about the interview that Marianela did, she mentioned Bread for Ed as the main example of how to do mutual aid right. This is how socialists should be doing mutual aid, Bread for Ed. And Bread for Ed was an incredible program. It was an incredible initiative and I applaud it. And I think that we need to be doing a lot more of that. However, I think that looking at mutual aid in a very narrow way where the only way in which it can be helpful um, is operating in um, conversation with labor at all times, it's misguided because it discounts a lot of social movement work. And I'm gonna give several examples of ways in which mutual aid has been used. I'm gonna actually start with labor. Right now in Chicago, everybody knows that teachers have, have were preparing to strike over negotiations on return to in-person learning in schools. A lot of the teachers that were preparing to strike and were protesting every weekend and were going outside in solidarity with their colleagues to teach in the cold were also participating in mutual aid efforts. And the reason why they were doing that is because they know that they have to be building power as workers and they also have to be engaging with the communities that they know need them the most, right? And the people that are going to also support their struggle. What kind of community work were they doing? 
Uh, a lot of teachers were organizing mutual aid pantries, making sure that uh, there were warm clothes available for students, trying to help families in any way that they could, right? So um, I have several of my friends who are teachers were engaged in this kind of work. And I think that's important to point out uh, because we also want to be creating communities of care. And, and I think ultimately what we want is a society that is based on the values of solidarity, right? I want to also point out that in the immigrant rights movement here in Chicago, we have had a lot of mutual aid going on. Here in my community, the Albany Park Defense Network had a an initiative going on uh, where people who had cases or families who had immigration cases would come and get help in terms of support to go to have accompaniment, to go to hearings, legal aid. And there was a lot of fundraising that was done for families that would lose a breadwinner due to deportation or incarceration. And then after these people got help, they would become part of the fabric that would also go to the hearings and would help fundraise and will help with the legal aid. And that built a lot of support in the immigrant rights movement, right? And got people engaged. And and a lot of the same people that were doing that mutual aid work were the same people that were engaged with being able to pass the welcoming city ordinance without the carve-outs that we were able to pass in the last city council meeting here in Chicago, which is a, a huge deal and has created one of the safest cities for immigrants in the U.S. In Puerto Rico, after Hurricane Maria, mutual aid is the only thing that there was. And building on mutual aid in Puerto Rico was really important for people to be able to have access to basic things like water and food, right? Or uh, medical help. A lot of, of the movement in Puerto Rico that ended up in the massive riots and revolt that ended up kicking out the governor in Puerto Rico um, had a lot to do with that those mutual aid projects that were created in the island. But some of those mutual aid projects evolved. One mutual aid project in Caguas that then became uh, a space in Santurce in the capital, they occupied a building and they started doing mutual aid and, and community work from that building. And now they have created a workers' co-op in that space that is now a, a supermarket that is going to be a co-op supermarket. And this is worker power as well, right? <laughs> One of the things I brought up with the interview with Maria Anella was that the example of Puerto Rico and the hurricane, also New York City after Hurricane Sandy, a lot of that was efforts to compensate for the fact that the state was either unable or unwilling to do this kind of work. And what what about that? I mean, are we just putting a band-aid in a problem that needs a larger solution? Or is there something intrinsically valuable about that kind of mutual aid in itself? Yeah, absolutely. I, I have another example that points to, to that particular issue. Here in Chicago, there is a, a group of people um, that are providing uh, support to uh, people who are being released from Cook County Jail. And this is happening in the cold. People are being released with no clothes, no shoes. Um, and these people sit in front of Cook County Jail and they make sure that people are clothed and that they have fare to take public transportation or that, or that they have a ride. And because of this work has become so public and it illustrates the cruelty that institutions like Cook County Jail inflict on people, now it has gotten the Cook County attention and they are discussing how to change those policies, right? Same as, you know, what we were talking about with the Welcoming City Ordinance. I think that there is a lot of power on people making sure that they are trying to meet the needs of of, of the people who, who most who are most vulnerable. But what I don't understand is why we're saying that that is exclusive, that that excludes protesting and that excludes organizing and that excludes building worker power. Because, because I don't think that's the case. And we also need to talk about how it builds social movements, right, which are essential for radicalization of consciousness in people. So 
what I don't understand is why the focus is we cannot be doing mutual aid because it dilutes our efforts, right? We just need to be focused on organizing worker power. We actually need to be doing both things right now. Yeah, there is that artificial distinction between labor and the community. People who work also live in a community. It's hard to separate these two things, right? And there's not a lot of people that are unionized either, right? And and whenever, you know, there's a lot of people, especially in the undocumented community, for example, who like there's very few people that are part of a union, but they work, they are workers. And you can actually help um people radicalize and you can actually help people understand, you know, uh, h- how to come together and try to transform the material conditions that we live under. And that can happen in a lot of different ways. And I think seeing mutual aid as a very narrow thing that is like charity or philanthropy is misguided. And I think that we need to create space in the fight for socialism, for mutual aid, and for people that are interested in doing this kind of work at the same time that we demand that government does the work that it needs to do. And now that we have elected in office, for example, here in Chicago, we are helping and we are being part of the mutual aid work that is being done at the same time that we are trying to push for the government to to provide these services right and and i i think this is i think we have actually a really big opportunity right now because people have been very responsive in terms of wanting to volunteer to do mutual aid and at the same time, they get engaged in other fights, like the fight to get a crisis response unit in here in Chicago, right? The treatment, not trauma counsel order that I introduced. There are people that are coming to try to fight for these things after they have volunteered to do work with the mutual aid project that goes on in my ward. So I, I think that there's a lot of possibilities. And the only thing that this can do is actually excite people and instill a lot of compassion and love in in the political work that we're doing. And you're using your office for um, help people out, right? Yeah. So during the polar vortex, we have realized that there are very few warming centers in our area. So we decided to keep the office open during the whole weekend to make sure that people could come and get warm and get food. And um, we we also had have lots of supplies, coats gloves, masks. Um, and we are going to continue doing that as long as, as the temperatures are frigid, because uh, we do believe that government should be taking care of people. And we want to set that trend, <laughs> that novel trend of government serving people, <laughs> particularly the most vulnerable. A strange and radical idea. Perhaps some some of the socialist objections to mutual aid come from the fact that it's so closely identified with anarchist philosophy and anarchists who think that the state is bad. They want to have a non-state approach to this, whereas socialists think, you know, we want to have a better state than the one we have. And so perhaps they are afraid that mutual aid uh, detracts from that. But you don't see this as a detraction at all, right? No, I, I, and I under, I understand that. But when you look also at the use of mutual aid in our communities and what the Black Panthers were able to accomplish, you know, like it actually became government work, as it should be, right? I think that exposing what are the needs that people have and making sure that we push for the government to be able to fund the satisfaction of those needs is one of our main goals. And mutual aid helps us put that message out there in a very compassionate way, right? Because uh, we can go and we can protest, but also we can protest while we uh, take care of those needs. And, and I think that's a beautiful thing, and it's a really important thing that we should be embracing. Yeah, the other interview on this show is with uh, Narina Hertz, uh, who has a new book out about loneliness and how people are just so isolated and alienated and alone. And what you're describing really is a great antidote to that kind of isolation and loneliness. Absolutely. And we have seen that. We have seen people um, that that have started coming to help in a lot of different ways because they need that human connection. And I think we, we all need that right now as well. So it is also a way to keep hope alive and, and remind ourselves that we are all part of, of this uh, ecosystem um, and that we that we need to be there for each other. There was one um, one thing that Marianela talked about that I, I I was not exactly sure. I think I understand that she, she meant that we needed to stay focused 
like laser focus on certain things, just like the capitalist class does it in order to be able to to exploit us, right? And I think that what she said could be interpreted in, in a lot of different ways because she was like, they are cold-hearted. We can also be cold-hearted, right? Like we can also just be laser-focused on something and forget about the rest of the things. And, 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 and I would make an argument that we don't want to. We don't want to do that. We don't want our fight to be rooted in that space. Um, and I'm not saying that there are not times when we need to focus on something very specific, but I do think that in general we we want to be welcoming to people. We want to we want we want to um, make sure that the way in which we fight is in harmony with our ultimate vision that we have for this world. Yeah, it seems very particularly important in this time where we're all staying indoors and keeping our distance from our fellow human. We really need to uh, reassert uh, bonds of social solidarity. Absolutely. Yeah, as they say in uh, Kerala, India, um, not social distancing, social solidarity. Physical distancing, but social solidarity. Yes. I, one more thing that I wanted to say in terms of the labor part of this. I think the CTU is a really incredible model because they are building the fight. They are making sure that they're fighting for their rights as workers and creating more democracy in the workplace and making sure that uh, their working conditions are as good as they can possibly be, while at the same time bargaining for the common good, because they are really aware of what the situation on the ground is for a lot of their students. So demanding that the government provide um, services for uh, on how students, for example, or sanctuary for undocumented students, all of those things are really important and they come from social movements, right? So I think that we also need to be pushing labor to make sure that they are following that model, because I think that is the perfect place where labor meets social movements and the, and the needs of the people. I was Rosanna Rodriguez, a member of the Chicago City Council. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of the title track from Londa Hecht's new album, Going to Hell. Till next week, bye. Strange when you try to be yourself for 